Welcome back to the flip side, ladies and gentlemen. Galen Clavio here, along with Brian Moritz. We're back recording on Monday. When was the last time we did that regularly? It was. Well, I know it was 2016. Regular. Oh, geez, regularly. That we're going back. We're going. We might be going back to season two like, before season we were two. Yeah, yeah. We've had a, uh, a weird schedules in season three, and then we had a last week. We had a flu delay and an IU basketball delay. But uh, I before I texted you today. I checked yesterday to make sure I see IU schedule, and I saw they played yesterday, and Tom Crean had a hissy fit at his own players, so good times all around. I didn't even watch that game, to really? be honest with you. I didn't. I I was one of those people who, uh, look, here's the thing. There are, and I watch almost all the IU basketball games. I am very much on board with, you know, following the whole season. I love college basketball, but... Uh, if there's one game that I have like a tremendous, uh, tremendously hard time getting my head wrapped around, you know, being excited about, it is the home game versus Rutgers. Right. Uh, you know, Rutgers. Like there's there's oak there's great basketball. Maybe not in the Big Ten this year. There's good basketball. There's average basketball. There's bad basketball, and then there's Rutgers. <laughs> and, and and it's just you know, I mean, look, maybe and I'm, look at some point. Maybe they'll get their stuff together. I mean, hell, Northwestern might make the tournament this year, and they used to be awful. Penn State, you know, occasionally makes the tournament, and 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 then sometimes they're not even in contention. But Rutgers, right now, they're just not a Big Ten basketball no. team in, in in the way that I have considered it. Like I'd rather St. Bonaventure was in the Big Ten at this point because I think they would put up a better fight. I mean, Rutgers is. I mean, there's such a a weird kind of athletic school. Like, they're completely miscast in the Big Ten. Not just geographically, but, like, historically. Uh, it, they just, they, they don't fit there. And it's funny um, to kind of give you a depth of, like, how bad, or really not even bad, just kind of, like, non-existent Rutgers basketball has typically been. When I was covering Binghamton, um, I think this would have been... 2000, the beginning of the, either 2007 or 2008, it was on the last two years, I don't know if it was Binghamton's tournament year, or the year before they went to the tournament, um, but they played at Rutgers, and they won at Rutgers, and it was not even considered one of the biggest wins in Binghamton history, and this is right. Binghamton against, you know, at, at the time, a big East team, but it was Rutgers, and it was kind of like, they be you know they kind of like like half heartedly made it a big deal, but it's Rutgers. Rutgers is terrible. They're they're terrible, and they're just like one of those schools that like on paper you think well they should be good. They're in Jersey. They're close enough to the city. You know it's a basketball traditional basketball hothead hotbed. They should be able to get eight to ten decent basketball players just by walking out of walking off campus. And they and and they're just, you know, except for the for the the naked free throw thing a few years ago. I mean, Rutgers basketball is pretty much nothing. So right. Well, and and just like you said, you know, historically speaking, you know, you you look at their their background. I'm looking at their page right now on um, on SportsReference.com, which mm -hmm. is a great site. And and you know, you look at their their win percentage like that. This year, as it stands right now, would be a, an oddity because right now, even after the loss to IU, they have a 58% winning percentage. Okay. That would be their first winning percentage above 48% that they would have had since 2005, 2006. Oh, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. They, they haven't finished a season with 
fewer than double digit losses since 1982 83 <laughs> right. uh, when they when they were in the Atlantic 10 they, right. they haven't made, they haven't made the NCAA tournament since 1991 right. when and, and that when they were in the Atlantic 10 at that point and i think you 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 summed and Katie just mentioned she was five when that happened. I mean, you you, <laughs> you, you you summed it up. There, you know, you could make a significant argument for Penn State being a Big Ten team. You could make an argument for Nebraska being a Big Ten team. Mm-hmm. Rutgers just isn't that sort of a school. And no. and and I know they I know they're aspirational. I've actually since we have a lot of Jersey kids that come to IU and study sports media. I've got some kids that are a little sensitive when it comes to Rutgers because that's like the hometown school, and I and I get that. Mm-hmm. But but man, it's like they they just seem to be on. Um, did you ever, did you uh, did you ever play the video game Spore? No, I did not. So Spore was this game. It was designed by Will Wright, who you know was the guy that made the Sims and SimCity and all that, mm-hmm. and and it was supposed to be uh, like an organism simulator okay. where. You start off and you're in like the mitochondrial stage and you're like swimming around the primordial soup looking for another organism to like mate with. And and then eventually after a while you grow out of that and you you emerge onto land and you become, um, you know, you get to like shape this creature. Well, it feels like the rest you know, the Big Ten is like full of creatures that are on land mm-hmm. and Rutgers is still in that primordial soup, like in the mitochondrial stage. Right. Although I, I have to say, looking at I'm looking at the sports reference page right now, Steve Peichel, their head coach, he's a really good coach. He oh, was okay. he, he was so, at Stony Brook for a lot of years when I was uh, when I was back when I was covering the America East. He's a really really good coach. Now there are structural factors that go into Rutgers that may not he may not be set up to succeed, but they at least have a competent coach right now. So that, they got that I, going for him. I made the comment on Twitter. It was the only comment, really, I made about the game because I didn't watch very much of it. I said, Rutgers is still a dumb basketball team, uh, but they're not as dumb as they looked last year. Uh, <laughs> and, it's, and it's true. I mean, they, they really look like they had no clue what they were doing last mm-hmm. year. Uh, and, and they do look like they have some idea. I mean, they're, they've actually got a decent SRS rating. Yeah. Um, their, you know, their, their Ken Palm rating is not bad. I, I actually think Steve... Uh, Pykel uh, is going to be able to do some good things there. I mean, he's a Calhoun disciple. He was right. very successful at Stony Brook. Um, so I, I think I don't want to say the future is bright because man, there's some there's some basketball jobs where the school just doesn't seem to care enough to make it anything other than a dead end job. You know, right. I mean, Northwestern's been like that for years. I wonder. I mean, if Chris Collins gets them to the tournament, that's a major accomplishment, and and maybe it shouldn't be. But because, I mean, there's no reason why Northwestern can go to the Rose Bowl and not make the NCAA tournament in basketball. Like that makes no that makes no sense, except that the school doesn't care enough to fund recruiting and, and, you know, fund the sorts of things that you need in order to have a successful basketball team. Mm -hmm. And so places like that or Penn State or Mm -hmm. or Rutgers or now DePaul, I guess, would fit into this category. Like these are like graveyards for coaches' careers, but I, I would like to think that they'll be able to you know maybe make a go of it and and at the very least maybe get into contention for like you know eight and ten nine and nine in the conference. And, and, and interesting, like DePaul kind of you know DePaul obviously has a basketball a real good basketball history tradition. 
Um, and being in Chicago, it, it, it kind of helps them, and it's kind of amazing how they've fallen down. But yeah, it is kind of stunning to think that Penn State has been so kind of meh for so long in basketball. Um, and obviously, they're a football school pr- primarily, but you'd think, you know, yeah, you'd think at some point they'd get, you know, get a two or three year run where they're, where they're, you know, a solid, you know, NCAA tournament team, a solid, yeah, they've been to the, I'm looking at Penn State, they've been to the NCAAs twice since 1990, since I've been out of college. I mean, that's, right. I mean, that's staggering. And okay, they had one year, they were 27 and 11 and didn't make it. Um, that was 2008, 2009. Um, but other than that, they're just, yeah, there's a whole lot of graveyard. This, yeah, that's a graveyard's a really good way to put it. Um, and in fact, in 2011, that Penn State team under Ed DeCellis made mm-hmm. the tournament. Ed DeCellis left that job at the end of that season to take the head coaching job at Navy. <laughs> so that that should give you a sense of, of the overall quality of the Penn State programs. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was Navy, and, and he's been at Navy ever since, and he's done – Oh, I mean, for I mean, I, I would like to say he's done okay at Navy, but he really hasn't. Like he he went three and twenty six his first year at Navy. Okay. So he left he left Penn State, who had just been to the NCAA tournament, to right. go coach a three win Navy team. That was preferable <laughs> in his mind. That's yeah, that's staggering. I mean, two thousand eleven. That was no, that was post Sandusky. So stuff, I think. Um, yeah, it was right after. I think it was when all of that stuff was going down. I mean, it was that must not have been a very comfortable place to be at all. No, but, I mean, but that team that year. I mean, that team that was Taylor Battles' senior year. Uh, you know, Tim Frazier was on that team. Um, you know, I mean, that, that team was okay. That team barely lost to Temple in the first round of the NCAA tournament. That team that was the team that had that weird run in the Big Ten tournament. That was Oh, the, that's right. Yeah. They 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 beat Wisconsin thirty six to thirty three <laughs> in a Big Ten tournament. Which if there's a game that like ACC fanboys like have a poster of on their wall to point out how much they hate the Big Ten, like that's the game. Right. So I so, so just for fun I looked up Binghamton on uh, on sports reference and I'm I'm pleased to say they're they're nine and ten this year. Um, which is actually more wins than they've had since 2009-2010. Um, they have not topped 10 wins since since then, and uh, they've been in the they've been, you want they might be the worst basketball for about two years span in two, over two years from 2011-2013. They had five wins total. Um, it's pretty bad. Yeah, it's it's really bad. So so I think we're 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 onto something here. Rebranding the pro, the podcast is just us going on sportsreference.com and going down rabbit holes. There may be no better. I, this is what I do for fun. <laughs> oh a yeah, lot of time like sir, I just sit here and I go through. My my students make fun of me because I I have all this arcane sports knowledge and they're like, how do you know some of these things? And it's it's honestly since these things have become available on the internet. It's, and even before then, like when they used to print those huge reference books out sure. you know, and, and you could buy them, uh, that I would just sit around and read about like, you know, backup quarterbacks in the mid eighties and in, in the NFL, or I would right. read about, you know, what teams made the NCAA tournament in like 1993, you know, that's, that, that's enjoyable to me because I'm weird. Oh no, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I remember last year was the first year I introduced, I'm going to do it again this semester, but when I introduced my sports writing class to baseball reference or sportsreference.com, the whole thing, and it's just, you see in, in a certain type of, 
and most of the guy people in the class and a certain type of guy it's always a guy but a certain type of guy it's like the they, they, they it's like their first hit and it's like it's over you know it's over you know you're their dealer now and it's done and, and they're done so um so um you know we could keep doing this all night i'd be okay with that but we do have some topics suggested to us by uh yeah, we but, can't we can't let, leave out what your friends suggested we talk. Yes, about. Yes, we so we have we have a couple topics. As always, you can either on Facebook or on Twitter we're at Flipside Pod or hashtag Flipside Pod. If you suggest the topic for us, we guarantee that we will spend at least one minute on it. Um, and we've got four of them from my Facebook fan, uh, fans. Yeah, Facebook friends. This week we also have uh, the topic we were going to talk about last week, um, which I think could be fun. Uh, but first, I want to get to uh, your beverage of the week. So, uh, what's your drinking? What's your drinking? <laughs> so, I just said. By the way, that's terrible. That's 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 the good English, that we're <laughs> folks. Um, I so you know I'm on this low carb thing. I've been trying out like the really bad uh, light beers uh, just to see if there are any that are like palatable enough that you could make excuses for drinking them. So. Um, <laughs> So on my other one of my other podcasts, the music podcast, I, I had bought some Corona Light. Ooh! And uh, I thought, oh, this won't be that bad. And wow, it really, <laughs> it's really terrible. <laughs> I, I didn't. I've only had it like once or twice, and and I uh, I was surprised at really how bad it truly is. Right. So um, do, so do you do you have a lime in it? No, that's the thing. I don't drink Corona with lime. Okay. I, I've, I actually regu- like Corona full or whatever you want to call right. like the you know, I, I actually think it tastes better without lime. Okay. Uh, and I don't I mean, I think the lime thing's kind of it, it's like a psychosomatic gimmick. It's like we, we trick ourselves into thinking that it tastes better with a lime and it actually tastes okay by by itself. Right. Well and, and it's the deal that if you have to do all this little work to add a lime to a bottle of beer, clearly we're dealing with a certain level of quality of beer if like the only way to do it is to is to, to uh, do it. So Corona Light, huh? So that's a thing that's happening. Um, I also, I also, Katie wants me to throw her beer in that she's having because it's much better. So, she, so she's having uh, the Count Orlock Black Pumpkin Ale Ooh. by by Urban Chestnut. Ooh, okay. So uh, I have not had it, uh, but she says it's delicious. So it's the there's a brewery out of St. Louis. Gotcha. All right. So I have um I'm back on the beer train this week and I have the One Claw Rye Pale L from Westbrook West West Westbrook Brewing. Easy for me to say. Westbrook Brewing Company and they are based in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And I picked this up as a craft beer uh in the craft beer binge when we were in North Carolina a couple weeks ago uh between Christmas and New Year's. We're at a farmer we're at a, like at an indoor market and they had the the craft beer and wine spot, and they had the kind of like roll your own six pack. I'm like, well, I'm you know that's twelve bucks I'm spending right away, and this is one of the cans I, I picked up, and it's really really I'm 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 impressed. It's a really really smooth, uh, smooth pale ale. It, it has has that nice kind of rye cutting flavor to it, but without the kind of sharp bite that sometimes you get from a rye beer, and it sure. and it limits and it kind of cuts down on the hoppiness of the pale ale. So I'm a fan of this one. So this is, and it's a really neat can too. You can't see it because we cut video out of this, but it's an, it's a cool kind of powder blue can with a crab on it uh, and some seashells. It's just a really nice, nicely designed can. So 
Um, all the way around. We, we did cut video out, but what we gained was my ability to hear you all the way through the podcast. It's actually been great so far. I, I, I mean, that's, I mean, some will say that's a good thing. Some will say that's a bad thing. You know, we'll call it a wash on this one. So, um, um, so, okay. So let's do, uh, let's hit these Facebook topics first. Cause I think, I, I think we can, um, talk these pretty quickly or at least let's let, deal with these and then get to, uh, our, our topic that we've been saving for a week. Um, so as always, uh, chip in with your topic. So the first one, and I'm reading these exactly as they were posted on my Facebook. So, um, um, so keep that in mind. So my sister, uh, sports writer for the Buffalo news, Amy Moritz, her suggested to- her topic, Justin Trudeau, Canadian prime minister, um, right. apparent yes. a, a, a hottie from what I'm told. He is a good looking man. I give, I'll give him that. Um, kind of, very i mean i don't really have anything bad to say about him um i do I mean he's he's the absolute darling of the progressives uh the, the young progressives in america no like question that he's he's like he's like the uh the the white francophile obama basically yeah he is and he's got well and, he, and he's uh you know he's you know he does a lot of things that we progressives like, and he doesn't very well. Like he has a very you know pointedly diverse cabinet. You know one of the things that I think really got people in the U.S. on like noticed them was somebody asked him why half like his introductory press conference when he took over why half his cabinet was was made up of women, and his answer was because it's 2015 or 2016 whenever he took power. And right. he shrugged, and that was it. And that's such a great answer. Um, I, the one thing I can I can talk about with um, a little bit about Justin Trudeau, and it's funny because he is like, for being such a progressive darling, he's like total Canadian governmental lifer insider. His dad was prime minister in the 1970s, so he's not like a rags to riches type guy. I mean, he's like born and bred into this life. Um, and, you know, his dad's. Uh, I don't know if it was his mother, but I know his dad's wife at the time, it might have been his mother, was involved in like a sex scandal with Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones when they were on tour in the late 70s in Canada. I mean, if you're going to have a sex scandal, that's a really good one to have. Yeah, that's true. No, I'm not I'm not, I'm not throwing shade. I just think it's it's important to throw that into the conversation. Right. The one, one thing I can say that that um the, about Justin Trudeau and kind of my own, I guess my only Justin Trudeau story is he was, and he was very much visible at my favorite band, the tragically hit their last concert. They had their farewell tour over the summer and their final show in Kingston was broadcast on the CBC broadcast internationally. And Trudeau was there and he was like, like dressed in a, like love, like a black leather looking jacket and jeans and, you know, not like a tip. It, it, it was it was only impressive because it was not like typical politician at big show. It was like dude at a rock show, um, and they, they they cut to him in the crowd because the the lead singer, uh, Gord Downey, had met, mentioned him a few times, and it just looked like he had you know decent ish seats without a lot of security around him. And I was like, huh, that's kind of neat. He's just kind of the dude a dude at the show right now. Um, I'm gonna- I'm going to make a joke that it's a joke on a number of levels, but I'm going to say that Trudeau is the most white privileged prime minister that a country could possibly have. Oh, no question. Uh, I mean, like, I'm trying to think of another free world country that could afford to have the their their prime minister, A, look like this guy, B, have his political bent, and C, have no security at a tragically hip show. Right. And four, B, at a tragically hip show. Well, I that mean. too. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, it's uh, and I look. I I'm not a I'm not a fan of the whole like 
privilege mantra thing, and I also okay. have no real feelings on Trudeau one way or the other. Right. Uh, I, but, I mean, I really don't. But I mean, it's Canada. Like, it's it's, it's right. I, I have nothing against Canada, but it's like I, 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 you know, we have a lot of Canadian listeners, but it's also like it's interesting the watching their transitions in prime ministers and how like you know, I mean, this guy is like very different from their previous prime minister. It's interesting to watch a country that's got that array of of political spectrum um you know and and have it exhibited like that in a very short period of time yeah and you know obviously growing up where i did canada was it it, it, it's just funny to to often see it and and hear kind of from people not like yourself but like from outs from the rest of the u.s who kind of look at canada as this like mythical great place of healthcare and justin trudeau and and like progressivism and all that. And I'm like, it, it, it's Canada. It's across the bridge. They have really cheap Chinese food and, and a better view of the falls. That's what we grew up with. Um, so um, dare I bring up the not a fan of the privilege mantra or is that the third rail for this podcast? Oh, no, it's fine. I'm I. I have a, I have. It's actually probably its own separate podcast. Sure. Uh, I think uh, I think it's something. Uh, let me suffice it to say for the purposes of this, because we have other things that we're planning on talking about, that mm-hmm. um, like many other things that we see in pop culture these days, it's a um, it's an element of conversation that brings up some interesting points that has been used as a, a bludgeon uh, to basically cut off um, commentary and debate from people. Uh, who disagree with certain people's political views uh, on, on on numerous occasions. I see it used like that all the time um, on social media. I see it used like uh, you know like that in in other areas. So I think it's you know it's it's one of these things that unfortunately, uh, if you're going to have a conversation about it, it, it tends to be misutilized as much as anything else. All right, and that's that's kind of a subtle hint that also is our our main topic for today. But we'll save. We'll save that one for uh, we'll save that one for uh, for a later podcast. That could be good to get into. All right. Um, also from Facebook, we have from Lou Borelli, a SUNY Oswego graduate, very proud SUNY Oswego graduate and uh, sponsor of our annual media summit. Um, <laughs> Lou's comments: Trump, best president in history. Well, not yet, because I mean he hasn't been uh, you know, inaugurated. He's yet. actually not yet president. So there's still th- there's still we're recording this on Monday, January sixteenth. There's still three days. Would it surprise anybody if he just bailed before he's inaugurated? I would be sur- I'd be shocked if he bailed before he was inaugurated. Okay, I would. I wouldn't be shocked if there was a military coup before he was inaugurated. <laughs> I'm just um, I'm just saying the way twenty. 20- 16 and bleeding into 17 and this whole electoral process has, has gone. I think the element of surprise is pretty much gone. Um, for, for, I, I, um, yeah, um, I mean, maybe. I mean, there's, there's, always, there's always the chance that something surprising is going to happen on this front. That's true. So, um, so yes, he's no, not the best president because he's not president yet. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's been an interesting, I, I remember it was just about, it was this time when we were recording last week that the Russia, the Russia dossier, the golden shower story had started to, to, to break. And, um, and that's kind of, you know, one of those stories that's kind of, kind of weirdly hanging around. Um, and now the, one of the bigger things he's doing is they're threatening to remove the White House press corps from the White House. 
Um, I don't, all this, all this, I don't know. What, that's, okay. been, that's been a fun story to follow. It, yeah, it, 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 it really has. Now, I get, I, and, I, and I tweeted about this earlier tonight. Like, I understand access to, to the president and official sources and in general is a good thing. Being told that you cannot have access to sources, especially by a government authority, is a bad thing. I'm generally against that. I understand that. However, two points here. One, the White House press corps, with especially with their their annual dinner, the thing they call a nerd prom, like they they, they lose a lot of cachet with me when they're complaining about ac- losing access on their First Amendment rights when they have that thing. But also, I mean, Jack Schaefer wrote about this on Politico, and there was another piece that I linked to that I don't remember who wrote. I'm going to look. Talk, up. It was Talking Points memo. It was Talking Points memo wrote. Yes, uh, Josh Stearns, I believe, or Josh. I say I saved that to talk about on this. Excellent. Show, well, yeah, let's talk about that because I I found that really wonderful, and the general idea behind it was um, that journalists and reporters can do and will can do a better job of doing their job if they're not in the building if they're not if you don't have this kind of quid pro quo deals of official access which is kind of how these name how the profession kind of works at that level um i love your take on it because you i always like your opinions on on this and, and and we often talk about this with sports and that's where our, our area of expertise is but i do find that that fascinating the idea of uh they're kicking us out well we can still do our jobs and the idea in the talking points memo piece which is really good was look until they until trump starts trying to shut literally shut down newspapers or news outlets or like seizing con- official government control of something and i don't count breitbart like Officially seizing control on a Pravda style, turning the New York Times into a Pravda style uh, uh, news news organization. Um, journalists are still going to have their rights, whether they're in the building or not, and they can still do their job. And in fact, you know, it's one of the arguments we make a lot. You can do your job better if you're not in the building, because then you can kind of you you, you report a little more critically. You can. You, you, you're forced to dig and do your job in a better way than just being the, the the kind of daily stenographer of the happenings at the White House. I'm going to start my commentary on this by referring to a different piece that was published yesterday in the New York Times. Okay. Uh, did you read this? Trump, Twitter, and the art of his deal. No, I'm, I did not. Okay, I would I would recommend reading it, and for anybody that's out there, I would recommend reading it. Uh, so okay. it goes. Uh, I want to I'm going to read some passages from it. I hope you don't mind if I if I read this in some somewhat dramatic fashion. Um, oh, beautiful! Oh, nice! All right, dramatic uh, monologue. I love it. A, a few weeks after this is by Amanda Hess. By the way, is the name of the 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 writer. Uh, okay. A few weeks after the election of Donald J. Trump. Pundits with their eyes glued to Twitter believed they'd finally deciphered the master plan behind the president-elect's tweeting. Every time he detonated a culture war bomb on Twitter, they suspected it was a sly bid to divert the public eye from more serious news about his impending administration. So when Mr. Trump reignited the dormant debate over flag burning one morning, tweeting that those who set fire to the flag should suffer, quote, loss of citizenship per year in jail, New York Magazine's Jonathan Chait quickly produced a column decoding the message. He called it a strange fight and a classic right-wing nationalist distraction that proves Mr. Trump's, quote, dangerous and authoritarian politics is calculated and not merely crazy, end quote. 
But soon a competing theory emerged. Minutes before Mr. Trump's tweet, Fox and Friends, one of the president-elect's favorite shows, ran a segment referencing the American flag burned on a college campus to protest his victory. He wasn't carrying out some strategy. He was live-tweeting his TV. <laughs> um and uh, and so it goes on and it talks about how Twitter is this impulsive medium this, and, I, and go ahead. Please. No, I, I, I'm reading ahead and they basically could have interviewed you for this because yeah. this is your theory in a nutshell. <laughs> and I want to get to the yes. I want to get to the most important paragraph. Um, um, you know, it talks about how Twitter, you know, doesn't really, you know, it's struggling. The growth has slumped. The stock price is stagnated. But the place suits Mr. Trump's purpose is fine. For the guy who's all about appearances, Twitter provides the veneer of populist connection without the hassle of accountability. Sean Spicer, Mr. Trump's incoming press secretary, has suggested that Twitter town halls and Reddit forums may replace some typical presidential press interactions where he can easily make himself available to anonymous fans instead of the scrutiny of the press. The social media platforms that were once heralded as democratic tools could also be used to undermine democratic norms. All of this works because one group is is as intoxicated by Twitter as Mr. Trump is, journalists. (laughs) It's hard to explain to a normal person, one of the 79% of American adults who don't use Twitter, why the platform mesmerizes the news media. Its all-powerful search function means you can conjure material on any kind of news topic or just spend your time searching for your own name. Reporters still crave the ego rush of a published byline, but that pales in comparison to the animated feedback loop that Twitter offers. The more time you spend and the more tweets you send, the bigger your following becomes. But Twitter provides little actual reach. Compared with Facebook or Google, it hardly drives any traffic to articles. It's like a video game for for professional validation. So – uh, and it go and it kind of sums up and talks about how you know what Trump is doing is basically he's lobbing firecrackers, not grenades, mm-hmm. just firecrackers. And every time one goes off, the reaction from from political news media and really sports news media and everybody else that 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 has an ideological bent that's opposed to Trump um, acts like. You know, he's one step away from declaring war on China. Right. Um, and, and, it's, and it's this fascinating, you know, this fascinating process that we're seeing playing out. Uh, and, and I think this writer is exactly right about about journalists and Twitter to some degree. So my wife and I just started watching House of Cards for the first time. Like we'd never we just started watching it. And, you know, so we're in the first season. And, you know, there's the there's the the, the situation that happens between the. The reporter and the the you know the the news editor at the paper, and you know the whole like next couple of minutes is consumed with watching reaction on Twitter. Uh, you know it's and and it, so it's it's again it's this idea that there's this closed feedback loop. It's something that we were talking about on social media about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I come back to the talking points memo thing. Um, what we've seen so far from Trump and his team is unquestionably things that should be the cause of vigilance and concern and and certainly things that are being said which would uh, go right up against uh, established norms that we've seen over the course of you know the last 20 or 30 years or so no question about that but we're also pretty much only seeing words there haven't been a whole lot of actions it's like yes we've seen you know, some votes on moving towards appealing 
uh, repealing Obamacare. We knew that was coming anyway. Like that's that's not exactly news. Um, I see a lot of bold proclamations. I see a lot of people basically arguing that Trump is carrying out an authoritarian state already. And and I see a whole lot of people kind of, you know, um, acting like their lives are, are, you know, as they know it, are coming to an end. And and it's what made that Talking Points memo, which the title of which is The Case for Not Being Crybabies. <laughs> yep. Uh, it, it really makes it to me a, a very prescient uh, opinion piece because I think what we're seeing is people who have concerns and and look, there have been concerns with every administration from one side of the aisle to the other. And, and there's a lot of concerns from both sides of the aisle. But people are acting like the Constitution is going to be like thrown into the trash can uh, in, in, in four or five days here. And that's right. just – not how things work. Right. And to argue to the contrary really makes you, I think, not you personally, but makes the arguer or arguers in this case seem a little bit out of touch with reality. Uh, very much, very much trying to um, cast things in a far more dramatic light than than perhaps they deserve. And and I'm not I'm not saying that people shouldn't be vigilant or that we shouldn't be concerned by some of the rhetoric, but treating rhetoric as if it is translating immediately into action is not, in my opinion, the role of a responsible free press. Right. Uh, and, and I think you actually really, you know, you know, we talk about Trump's war on fake news and, 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 and how he's turning that into a war on real news and all that. But when everything is turned into a crisis of epic proportions, you really do – create an environment where the average person, the average news consumer becomes less and less interested in what you have to say because uh, everything that you have to say seems to, to imply that there's a wolf coming over the hill. Right. And that, 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 was, an, that was something I had seen leading up to and immediately in the aftermath of Trump winning. And it was the idea that for years, and I don't know how much I buy this, but it's an interesting thought experiment at least, the idea that for years and years and years, every Republican nominee was denigrated as a racist, as a homophobe, as a, you know, a, a misogynist, an enemy toward women, toward minorities, toward, you know, kind of all progressive ideals in a really demonizing way. And you get some, and, and then you get a ticket like Trump Pence, who on words, on enabling, and on, you know, actions by Pence, actually is probably more dangerous than, you know, Mitt Romney ever was, or John McCain ever was, all of a sudden that, that's fallen on deaf ears, and people kind of, that, that message doesn't resonate, because of kind of the crying wolf situation. I just, I mean, one of the things, you know, it, it's funny, our conversations about Twitter and, and this, the article, the stats from the New York Times, they've actually kind of changed how I'm structuring a lot of my classes, my online journalism classes, my sports writing classes, to where we're, I, I'm not completely de-emphasizing Twitter, but it's not going to be as prevalent a tool that um, as it has been in the past for that reason. You know, it's, it's really become noticeable that it's a journalism echo chamber or that it's report writers talking to other writers. And there's a place for it. There's a place for young writers to have it. But, um, but not to the extent that I think we, as journalism educators, have been using it and propping it up for a lot of years. Um, and I just, one of the things I liked about the Talking Points memo and the Jack Schaefer piece in Politico is it kind of, you know, 
it's kind of I, I love the refreshing kind of call to action on it. You know, as a, as you know, someone who still kind of self identifies as a journalist and who teaches journalism is kind of like you know they're, they're going to kick us out. Fine, we're going to fine find other ways fine. to tell the story. You know what? You know I mean, what? You're kicking me out. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make you look worse now because now you don't have me in the building to. Okay, I, I bring it on, and I just kind of I, I, I love I that know. I love that reframing of it of that. You know, all right, let's be the outsiders again and let's kick their butts instead of you know. Oh no, we're not inside the building anymore. I mean, I'm sure I'll get criticized for you know some kind of like you know uh, some violating some like gender neutral thing here but you, you ever watch the godfather duh okay you know that scene at the beginning when johnny fontaine comes in to talk to to don corleone oh yeah you can act like a man yeah you, you know and and he's like <laughs> sitting on the desk and he's just you know whining about how you know he can't get into this this picture and and you know all this and yeah, and and Vito, you know, jumps up and slaps him across the face and says, "You can act like a man." And I kind of feel about, about the political journalism industry right now. It's like, uh, stop complaining. Like, right. I mean, this and, and, th this guy is a goldmine for for stories. You, the, the, this is not going to be a heart. What well, am I going to write about Trump today? And what am I going to investigate? There's so much there. And, and one of, it's like there was one of the things I, I don't remember if it was in the TPM piece or if it was in the New York Times piece, but it was about this. OK, yeah, he's always going to be more popular than you on Twitter. That's OK. Your job isn't to be popular. Right. Uh, if you're a journalist, your job is to to tell the truth and report on things that need to be reported on. Right. And, you know, this this idea, what I'm really interested in, like right now, it's 2017. Um. It, if you're if you really think that the number of retweets or the number of, of ad impressions in you know in 2020 is going to be the deciding factor in in what is you know good or not good to to write about something or broadcast about something, I think that that's that's a very temporary, very illusory sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know the the idea that the the current metrics. Or this this individualized state that we happen to find ourselves in, when it comes to the way that social media is interacting with news, I think that's something that's going to transform. But it's something that's going to have to transform as the news media dictates it. And you know, it's going to be left to journalists to some degree to lead the way because the management in in news media is certainly not leading anybody to anything except. Right more bad business decisions. So, you know, news, newspapers, uh, television stations, whatever, people who are working as journalists need to find, um, you know, ways to get their message out to people, much larger groups of people. I mean, that, that, that Times piece, you know, really points out that you, you're not reaching people on Twitter. If you are, it's secondary or tertiary. I mean, you're basically tweeting so that a television station will pick up your story. Well, that's that's not really I mean, that's that's where we're at right now with yeah. this sort of reporting. Like that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't it's it's um it's just and and, and look, I get why when Trump tweets it becomes a story. Like that's an established norm that's an established thing. You know, the president-elect makes his public statement. You cover it. Um, now, do you have to cover it in the kind of hysterical way that that kind of his tweets get covered? No. 
Um, I did love Jack Schaefer had one point, and this was back still when we, you know, playing off the times piece when it was the he's distracting you, he's trying to, to get us to get everyone to, to get the media to talk about something else rather than the, the distraction move, which I think there is still an element of. And uh, Schaefer's advice to journalists, and I love this, was retweet Trump's quote, but also a link to the story that he's trying to distract you from that day, which I think is kind of yeah. cool. So, um, I just look, and I, and I you know, I, we got into a, uh, you and me didn't, but me and a, another friend of mine who's a, who's a writer got into a back and forth in early December about whether we even need to be covering Trump's tweets, period. And okay. I, I, I keep going back and forth on this, but I, I really don't think that Trump's tweets deserve the same sort of attention as, uh, you know, his, his press conferences or other like more official public statements, because again, they're not being made as presidential proclamations. They are, they're, they're stream of consciousness items that I don't think frankly have any sort of larger strategic element to them. They are the reactionary statements of a reactionary man. Right. Um, you know, I, it's like, it kind of it's it, it it reminds me of the George W. Bush era, where um, you know people on the on the Democratic side of the political aisle, out of both sides of their mouth, one side would say that George W. Bush was an illiterate donkey who was incapable of carrying on, uh, you know, a, a sentence that had more than five words in a conversation, and the other hand was that he was some kind of evil political genius that was somehow you know, plotting the downfall of the entirety of America. It's like, I mean, you can't, you can't be a buffoon and be an evil genius at the same time. See, <laughs> see, as a, as a democratic person, I would say, I would alter that a, a bit and that I would say that Dick Cheney was the evil, op- was the evil genius and Bush, right. But, but you then, know, but, but even, even if that's the case, um, I still think that at the end of the day, with Trump, the the same sort of thing is is being generated. Whether you want to say it was in two people or one person, now it's being argued. Okay, Trump is this diabolical, <laughs> evil man, but he's also you know this dumb reality television star. I, I look to me, it's pretty straightforward, and and a lot of the the meaning that's being imbued uh, into the the, the tweets is is being placed there by external forces it's like a bunch of of english majors sitting around debating song lyrics when you know okay well this is obviously you know referring to this some you know great political thing and it, and it was actually just a guy writing about a girl that he dated for two months right you know it's it's we got to be we, we got to be careful not to imprint our own um hopes or fears into other people's content when in fact it may be far simpler than we think it is right by the way there's apparently a seven to seven nhl game right now yeah caps pens it's, caps, it's, it's been it was it was seven five pens with 10 minutes to go in the third period this is amazing i love this um this is it's the 80s all over again this man. is awesome all right let's move on so another topic from facebook from uh, uh emily mccardle from fairport new york her topic ellie for those of you who don't know, Ellie is my daughter. Um, and a little context for this message, Emily is actually one of Ellie's theater teachers at Spotlight Theater Arts um, in Fairport. I want to give them a plug. And uh, so uh, 
look, look, I don't need an invitation to talk about my kids, so I will really try to limit this a little bit. But um, well, let me. Let, I, I, so my wife had a question relating to this okay. that, that I was supposed to ask. So okay. uh, your your daughter is involved in the arts yes. as a as a as a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what age did you find was appropriate to get her started in those things? Uh, that, that's an excellent question. So her, so her first play she did, she was four and eight months. She, it was the summer before she turned five. So she was four. Um, and, uh, they have the, the spotlight theater arts where I was, I was talking about in Fairport. They have a really, really great, uh, kids theater program. They do two shows in the summer and then they do a show in the fall and the fall and a show in the spring. And it's for ages. It's generally from ages like it starts at five. Ellie was close enough to five that they let her do it for uh, one of the summer shows. Um, and, you know, and, and it's really cool because in the summer it's a two week camp and they go every day for three hours in the morning and they do a whole play from like in 14 days. They, they start the play on Monday. They audition Tuesday and then. The following Friday is usually the first performance. So the following Saturday is the first performance. And it's spread out a little more during the school year where they do it once a week. Um, And, like, we knew really early on, given Ellie's personality, that she was, you know, she was made to to be on stage. Like, she just has that kind of outgoing theater kid natural personality and my wife jen she's a theater was a theater kid still very much a theater person um and really you know we're a musical musical family as well so kind of just you know kind of encourage all of that um and i think five right around five so she was like four and three quarters but right around five i think is generally a good age to kind of start getting them started because you kind of get a sense whether what how much they like it how much they kind of naturally take to it. And I'll say this, Ellie is taken to theater just like, 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 like a natural. Um, I mean, that's just very much what she wants to do. She spent, she was off today for MLK day or great Americans day. If we were in Alabama, but MLK day here in New York. And, um, she spent most of the morning writing, writing a play, writing audition, uh, packets for a play that she's going to do with her friends here and in her room one day. Um, and that's just kind of what she, you know, she kind of naturally took to that. And I think that's a good age to kind of start getting them involved because by the time they're about five, they, you know, kids start to really have their own personalities and they've been going to school. Maybe they're in kindergarten or in preschool and they kind of have a sense of what they like, what they like to do, what they're capable of doing. So I would say that. Okay. That sounds good. Well, we've still got some time, right. fortunately, but um, I. I do notice some performance tendencies in in our daughter. We uh, so we got her a little basketball hoop, and then she's also got a little xylophone. Okay. And uh, with both now, she'll she'll play and then stop and start applauding herself. Very nice. Uh, yeah. Which is a cue for everybody else to applaud her. Right. Uh, nice. I, I started that because I was trying to encourage her to do. Uh, some of those things. So I would start clapping whenever she like made a basket or something like that. But well, I feel sure. like now she's kind of fallen in love with the whole idea of, of performing for applause. So. Right. Well, you know, there are worse things. And also my daughter declared herself this weekend to be both a Pittsburgh Steelers fan and a Jacksonville Jaguars fan. So I have that going for me. Um, the that's, sti- that's definitely the yin and the yang. Right. Uh, well, well, well. She she knows enough not to be a Bills fan. She actually asked me. I put this on social media. She's like, "Why do you cheer for the Bills? They never win anything." 
That's a really <laughs> good question, kid. Um, she likes the Steelers because two of her friends at school are Steelers fans, and I'm not going to be mad about that. You like the Steelers. They're always good. That's fine. And um, she likes the Jaguars because mostly because she wanted to know if any football team was the Cheetahs she likes cheetahs, and they weren't, and Jaguars were the closest. Um, and we also Sound logic. And we also drove through Jacksonville two weeks ago, so, you know, th- th- that's what we have. So, thank you, well, Emily. If you'd, if you'd stopped in Jacksonville, that might have killed that fan dream. We, right we, actually, there, we so. actually did stop in Jacksonville. Oh, okay. We, wow, we, okay. Well, wow. we like, we like um, and on family road trips, we like to find really weird roadside attractions. It's just a thing that, you know, we, when we have long drives, we like to do it. It's really fun. And there was one on Roadside America for a giant rubber duck in Jacksonville. Like, okay, we literally drive through Jacksonville on 95 on the way between Orlando and uh, coming from Orlando going up to Charlotte. Well, sure, we'll stop off. And we, we, we go into, you know, the sprawl of Jacksonville. And it's a medium-sized rubber duck just like on this little pond next to an abandoned Burger King. It was the most biggest letdown of a roadside attraction we've ever seen. So when you say medium-sized rubber duck, how big are you talking about? So it was it, it was uh, it was out in the water, so I couldn't get a good gauge, but it was probably no more than five six feet tall, and maybe and that's still a pretty big rubber duck. I mean, five or six feet tall. I, I mean, mean, I, I mean, I mean, it was not a tiny rubber duck, but it was you know when you hear like roadside rubber duck, you know you're thinking you know, good size here. And this was, and we almost drove by it. It was in between like an abandoned Burger King. There's an expensive car wash behind it and a, a BMP gas station right in between. Sounds, like, sounds like Florida to me. It was total. It was, it was quintessential Florida. By the way, Florida drivers are the scariest people I've ever driven. I've ever been around. Um, yeah, they're really bad. I mean, yeah. they, and they get worse the closer you get to Miami. Oh God, I can imagine. So, all right, we have one more from Facebook and then we've got to get this topic from last week. Um, so Doug Schneider, my friend, uh, former colleague in Binghamton, who's now in, in uh, uh, Green Bay, uh, writes, want us to talk about Scanner Squawk. Are you familiar with his work on Scanner Squawk? I, I regret to say no. Okay, so he has been featured on De- Doug's been featured on Deadspin for this. What Doug does during every Packers home game at Lambeau Field, he 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 covers the game. He's obviously not covering the sports, but he sits by the police scanner and tweets out what you know reports of drunken fights, people being ejected at Lambeau Field, and with a hashtag scanner squawk. And he's kind of got a little cult following on it. And it's amazing, because you can just imagine what the police scanner for Lambeau Field on a football Sunday is like. Um, it's really, really a lot of fun. I think it's a really cool way to kind of present a, like a, like a weird way to cover a football Sunday, weird, fun way to cover a football Sunday. Um, and it always gets me thinking, like, what other... St- cities would be great to have a scanner squawk for buffalo football oh no question R- I Ralph mean, was- everything i read on deadspin makes orchard park sound like gomorrah <laughs> we you know? I-, I haven't been to a bills game since well before ellie was born and she's six now um and i don't have any plans to go back especially not with her but there was one time and i had went and I was well beyond binge drinking days, but we still we were we were in the in the parking lot for a long time, and we had a uh, a our own little bathroom. And by bathroom, we meant we had a hunter's tent with a box of kitty litter in the oh, middle. Yeah. And you know, okay, that's probably standard tailgating, but yeah, it 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 it, it Ralph Wilson on on a on a on a on a game day. That is yeah, Gamora is right. That's just. But uh, I think I, I get what you're saying. I mean, 
So where else we where else would be good? Do you think in the NFL we won't handle colleges because college is a whole other other box of, box of salt there. But um, you know the thing is, I mean, there aren't if you think about it, like the NFL. It's become so corporatized and so very, fancy. Yeah, yeah, it's very sanitized, and there are. I mean, it's what makes the Bills stand out. Um, you know, and I guess the Packers stand out to some degree, but that's mostly just because you're in. You know, you're in Wisconsin, and those right. people—I mean—they they drink beer for breakfast. And they can, I mean, uh, those pe- people in Wisconsin—they can drink. Yeah, that's 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 legit. Um, you know, it's too cold in, in Minnesota, and those people are, are too like polite. And they're too friendly, and they're in, and the stadium's indoors I, now. So I would get—I would say if I had to pick another city, it would probably be New Orleans. Oh, I would see. I would go. Doug and I have talked about this. We would go Philly. No, I mean, yeah, I could see that. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Philly, Philly seems like it's it's an interesting animal from that perspective. But yeah, I could I could see that being entertaining. Yeah. So. I could see that. Yeah, I mean, co- college, I think, is where it's at. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. But I do, you know, some. I was thinking about this the other day because uh, someone tweeted something out, which is very accurate, which is that, you know, you can one of the one of the interesting things that separates sports fandom in the u.s from fandom in say european countries is that you can root for a team without there being like a a socio-cultural or political thing attached to it um you know so for instance like if some of the some of the well-known rivalries in sports in europe are because the teams represent very different uh, aspects of the culture. So, you okay. know, I mean, some, some of them are, are religious, like, you know, Celtic versus Rangers sure. in, in Scotland, Celtics, the Catholic team and Rangers is the Protestant team. Um, others are, you know, more, you know, they, they represent different aspects of, of the culture. So like, um, AC Milan versus Juventus, AC Milan is the team of the people and, uh, not excuse me, not AC Milan Juventus. AC Milan and Inter Milan. Um, you know, a- AC Milan is a team of the people. Inter is kind of the team of the intellectuals. Okay. Um, you know, there's certain uh, Real Madrid versus Barcelona. You know, Real Madrid. That was that was Franco's favorite team. It was very much the statist, um, you know, conservative team in Spain. Whereas Barcelona, you know, it's in Catalonia. It's you know, it was it was kind. Of, it's always been seen as kind of like the resistance uh, team to follow. They they suffered under the Franco regime, mm-hmm. so you you don't have that sort of political element to a lot of U.S. fandom. But but as a result of that, you don't really get at least on the professional level the the reputations among the fan bases because the fan bases are all kind of intermixed with each other. You do huh. get it in college. I that's why I think college fandom. Uh, in many ways is a lot more interesting because, um, you know, you'll, you know, you've got divides between, you know, like the, the ag tech people and the, you know, the liberal arts people, or you'll have, you know, divides between like, you know, the, the private school and the, and the public school or in North Carolina, like the kind of the, the effete public school in North Carolina versus the school for the hoi polloi in North Carolina state. Right. Um, you know, so, I don't know. I've always found that sort of thing to be somewhat interesting, but it, but it's also something we just don't think about that much in the U.S. these days. Yeah, that's a good point. So so great topics from everyone. Please uh, please uh, always be willing to uh, share with us what you want to talk about. 
Uh, we have a few minutes left. Um, we're at 55. Do we want to handle... Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, so we so we talked about this... So we were going to talk about this last week. We talked about it on Twitter. We talked about it on my blog's Facebook page. Um, and it was... The topic is the most misused or erroneously used sports phrases. So phrases that are used either incorrect... Phrases that are used wrong. Um, and you had two of them. So I'll let you, let you uh, make your case on both of them. Well, we started off talking about college basketball, so I'm going to say mid-major mm-hmm. is, is one. And if you follow college basketball at all, particularly from like this time of the year until March, you can't watch uh, two minutes of a studio show without hearing somebody talk about mid-majors. And, mm-hmm. and yet mid-major in the way that people talk about it basically seems to indicate any team that's not in a Power 5 conference. Right, right. And that just drives me up the fucking wall because that's not right. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like if, if that's the case, like if conferences one through five are major and then conferences six through 32 are mid-major. Right. I mean, that that that's a perversion of the English language. Yeah. It's, so uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, it, 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 I remember um, when I covered when I was covering St. Bonaventure and this was from 99 to 2004. It was right when. Xavier was really making its first big push to national prominence. Like that's when David West was there. It was kind of like when they kind of broke through and they were kind of like the classic mid-major school. And they got so pissed off when you would call them a mid-major for years, they railed against being considered a mid-major. And it just, it it does highlight that, that weird, that weird level of what's a mid-major. Like if you go by what they say on, on uh, on Sports Center, you know, everyone from Xavier down to you know down to Binghamton and Albany are all mid majors, and that's not not exactly right. It was wh- it's why I've always hated the bracket buster. I don't know if it's still a thing, but bracket buster gone, weekend. I think it's gone finally. Oh, thank God. Um, it was such a. Ter- it was. I mean, the 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 the, the, the what would have made something like bracket buster cool would have been when you have a legit mid major host a power conference school that's kind of on the bubble. So you would get, as an example, a Penn State coming to St. Bonaventure in February. Like a game that, you know, Penn State would never come to Bonaventure, you know, for a non-conference game. But you set that up kind of like the good to, the okay to good mid-level program in like the A-10 or like the, uh, the, the MAC, the single, the single A MAC or something like that, gets a home school, home game against a power conference team that's not, you know, not Duke or North Carolina or Indiana, but like kind of that one step down. Instead, it kind of turned into national celebrate everybody who's not in a um, uh, in a power conference state to the point where Manhattan played Binghamton on a bracket buster. And there's, that's not a bracket buster because the, the whole idea of a bracket buster is the, the, the idea is you want to give teams that wouldn't normally get a shot to kind of get them publicity and then it, it, it against the major school. And it, instead it was just kind of pitting all the minors, the, these non mid majors and even some mid majors against each other. And it was just like well-intentioned, but it just became national celebrate national. Oh, they play basketball in other places too. Isn't that cute day? Yeah. I mean, I've always looked at it like this. There's, there's really four types of conferences, I would say. Mm-hmm. You got your power conferences, which is normally, there's normally six mm-hmm. of those. You know, the Big 12, the Big 10, the Pac-12, the ACC, the SEC, and, and now the Big East. Right. Um, 
Then you've got what I would consider to be major conferences in that they normally will land multiple teams. Mm -hmm. So the Atlantic 10 normally falls into that category. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Mountain West normally falls into that category. Um, You know, I think you could make an argument in recent years, the Missouri Valley normally falls into that category. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, And, and, and then you've got the mid majors. And to me, the mid majors are conferences that are, um, that, that could put two teams in, but it depends on things breaking right, uh, for the conference. Uh, you know, so the West coast conference, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a league that a lot of times will put two teams in, but that's about it. Like very rarely is there a situation where somebody other than Gonzaga or St. Mary's is in contention sure. for an at large bid. Um, you know, you could, I think, make the argument to some degree with, um, with the colonial athletic association, right. same sort of thing. And, and, and then, you know, there'll be other conferences that will pop up every now and again. The big West occasionally has had that. Uh, and there's a couple of others that fit in there, but everybody below that, you know, you're, and so basically, you know, at this point you're talking about, you know, conferences 10 through 14 in a given year or nine through 13 in a given year. And then everybody else below that, like conference 14 through 32, uh, you know, those are frankly those are those are low major conferences. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, those are those are conferences where the only team that's going to the NCAA's out of them is the team that gets the automatic bid from the conference tournament. And right. there's nothing wrong with those conferences, but to call, you know, like Middle Tennessee State or Murray State or somebody like that a mid major is just it's it's a perversion of the of the nomenclature and I just don't like that. Right to call Siena a mid major is right. is, is, well, is, is well here here's the interesting here's the interesting the the, the the Mac or the the Metro the, Atlantic or the double A the double A Mac yeah yeah there I mean they will occasionally have an at-large outside of, of their auto bid. But but those are not big schools by right. any stretch of the imagination. And they're right. not even like mid-sized schools. I mean, that's a real accomplishment. That's not a mid-major conference. It just, right. It just, it isn't. Well, and, 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 you know, I've always thought that, you know, you, you, you I like, it's interesting that you take it from a conference point of view because I could take it from a kind of an individual program point of view um, where, you know, I, I, I don't want to argue this too much, but I could argue that Bonaventure is more of a mid-major, even though they're in a power conference, you know, what you would consider to be a major well, conference, given size, given budget, given location, given kind of the contextual nature of the program, um, you know, but, I'm you know, I'm not going to, that's not a hill I'm going to die on, but, you know, but yeah, it's a call like Niagara, a mid-major, like that just stretches... I mean, I do, I do think it's. I think you bring up a good point. There, you know, there's these conferences. In some cases, are collections of teams that are very similar in profile and program scope, and in other cases, they are more like convenient affiliations of teams that are more or less in similar circumstances. Right. Uh, I, you know, and personally, I've always felt like the Atlantic 10 was the most bastardized of all of them. Oh, no question. And it's gotten worse in the last couple of years, too. Yeah, because they lost Xavier. And Temple. Uh, and Temple. I mean, you know, like, what the, the things that really kept that, like, elevated the profile. I mean, who's the best team in the A-10 now? Dayton? Dayton, uh, VCU, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's I'm I'm looking at them. I'm gonna look up the uh, 
A10 standings right now. But um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I'm biased from when I covered it and from my you know history with it. But like to think of Temple as not the best, one of the best teams in the A10 is still always staggering to me. So Richmond is actually first place in the A10 right now, followed by VCU, Dayton, and LaSalle coming in in a strong four and one. Your Bonnie's looking at a, at a sneaky three and two with a big game at St. Louis this weekend. So yeah. this week, so um, must win on the road for the Bonnies. But, um, but yeah, it, it, I mean, that's just such an interesting, you know, that's kind of one of those weird catch-all terms that you don't know what to call somebody and you don't want to insult a program by calling them a low major because that sounds, you know, insulting. So we'll call them a mid-major, but then it kind of puts everybody on this weird, we're not in the ACC or the Big Ten, so we're all the same and it's weird. So right. one of the other phrases you had, and I loved your definition of this, by the way, I never told you this, but your definition of hot take. Um, yes. I, I talk about this a lot because when I teach sports writing, the the whole hook of my opinion writing, column writing week, is <laughs> to, to avoid hot takes. How to right. avoid? Basically, don't be Skip Bayless. Um, Stephen A has been my guy in the past, but it's going to be Skip this year. Um, but yeah, so avoid hot take. And so you know, you it's one of those things where like, what do we mean by hot take? Because that's one of those phrases that it's turned into. I disagree with your opinion, so I'm going to say you're you're a hot take. Um, you yeah. know, I, 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 I don't think Tom, I, you know, Tom Crean was wrong in yelling at his players after the alley-oop at the end of the game. Well, that's a hot take you're giving me. And that's not really a hot take. I just maybe disagree with you or I want to, I don't want to have a I, more, I disagree with you and I just want to shut down the conversation and make you look stupid. So I'm going to say you have a hot take. And I think that, you know, we have, it's, a, the, it's the privilege of sports. It is the privilege uh, of yeah. sports. And I think, and I think we have a, you know, I'm going to, let me call up my Facebook page, but I'll let you talk a little bit about what you think, what you think makes a hot take. So well, well, on, on, a, I, an actual hot take, not just an, I disagree with yeah, you one. And I forget what my definition was that I gave you, but I, I just think for, you know, hot takes are purposefully constructed arguments that are intended to run, contrary to uh you know given public opinion in my opinion like i mean if you if you think about like hot take wasn't even something in the lexicon until about two or three years ago Mm -hmm. and what generated it was really skip bayless uh you know i mean skip skip bayless for as much as people complain about him has has changed the way we think about sports and sports conversation now we've had hot takes you know, long like long ago before Skip Bayless was a prominent figure in the scene, but mm-hmm. uh, but Skip Bayless delights in taking positions that seem indefensible, but they are actually somewhat defensible, and that irritates people. Right, and and then pushing them out uh, in a way that um, makes it not hard to assail the the commentary, but uh, but makes it one of those situations where you. You know, you look at what he's saying and you're like, I can't believe he's saying that. But you can't just summarily dismiss everything he's saying unless you want to make the argument that he is crazy. Right. I mean, I just I look at it. I look at it. and I, I say to myself from a hot take perspective, I, you know, I enjoy the a little bit of the, uh, you know, the absurdity of some of the arguments, because frankly, I think. What what makes sports talk, whether it's on the radio or whether it's on television, dull is when 
we just like sit around and all agree with each other that, you know, this coach is great or these players are great or, you know, this is how you do things in the National Football League. Like that stuff gets really dull. Um, Where I think hot takes kind of go off the rails a little bit is when we don't acknowledge that, hey, I'm going to say this, but this take is actually a little bit ridiculous. Like when you actually like when you really when you start pushing a, you know, a, a long-term agenda that for instance, Tim Tebow is a great NFL quarterback. Like that's, that's where things go off the rails. Right. And I, I, you know, to me, I I like your, I think a key part of it is kind of like the, the contrariness for the, for the sake of, uh, uh, of kind of getting attention for it. You know, there's nothing wrong with contrary being, being contrarian, but there's kind of the, there's, there's an over the topness to it. I think to a hot take, um, and, and an over the topness to the contrariness and a, a kind of a look at me example of it. Like Jason Whitlock is a kind of a prime offender, I think too, of this. Um, and I, and, and for me, you know, it's kind of like the idea, and I've always hated this, you know, the idea that as a sports columnist, you know, love them or hate them, you know, you, you, you know, they're talking about you and you have a strong opinion about whatever the topic of the day is. And like, I don't know, it, it just always strikes me as, um, you know, when, when I put this out as a question on Twitter, one of the answers I got, you know, one of the words I kept hearing was kind of like knee jerk reaction to something. And I think there's something to that. You know, I think there's something to the feeling that like, um, I know, I know we kind of disagreed where you kind of, you know, rightly called me out on this on face, uh, on the blog post, but where it's, and, you know, there, there, there's the, I think the perception that there's not a lot of real thought or real research or real reporting to it. And, and, and you're right in saying that that's not necessarily true, but, it, but it does kind of feel like the knee jerk, I'm going to say something to make you mad about it. Um, or well, just, or with the, with the sole purpose of, generating reaction whether um and 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 i don't know to me i guess one of the things when i think of hot take and i don't know if this is right but it kind of it strikes with me is i feel like there's an inauthenticity to it there's not a a a, i don't know that's just the word that comes to me there it feels inauthentic it feels like I'm yelling this opinion about Tim Tebow because I know it's going to stir the pot and it's going to get people tweeting and, and writing to, writing me and commenting and calling me names. And that's my job as a columnist. And I don't know. I just I, I, I want my students and I want, you know, a sports commentary to aspire to be better, to be a little more thoughtful and a little more more authentic than just spouting opinions off. Well, I will say this. A lot of people don't like Skip Bayless, and I understand why. I actually don't mind Skip Bayless because Skip Bayless he makes he does have some some kind of crazy opinions. Uh, he he will go uh, to the rails on on certain things, but Skip at least tries to back things up with with you know I don't know evidence might be too strong of a word, but he tries to back up his arguments with something relating to sports. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a problem with the folks like, say, Jason Whitlock's a good example, or uh, I think Colin Coward fits into this category. Coward, not quite as much, but certainly Whitlock, um, whose entire rationale for stating their opinion is that I know more about this this stuff than you do. Yes, and and if you don't agree with me, then then you're an idiot. And right. and that to me, that's. That is that is that is if you're gonna like rate the levels of hot takiness, like that's the worst kind. And, I agree. Um, so if your students learn nothing else, hopefully they'll they'll learn to avoid that. But you never know. I mean, maybe they'll get lucky with it. Right. 
Um, the levels of hot takiness. There's the title. I like that. <laughs> um, so the one other, the one other most misused or erroneously used sports phrases. I know we're running long here, but I wanted to mention when I was thinking about it. And for me, um, analytics is kind of one that's kind of becoming most misused or erroneously used. And it's kind of being used again. It's kind of like the, I disagree with your opinion. So I'm going to assume I'm going to blame it on analytics and how, you know, people are, how people are watching the game and how people are using that. Mike Wilbon is the primary offender in this category. Um, but I'm reading a fantastic book right now. Um, the title of it is the only rule it has to, is that it has to work. Um, and it's by Ben Lindbergh, and I have to get the co-author's name. Uh, two guys from Baseball Prospectus, um, and they became the they they took over they took over the roster and the the on-field operations of a minor league of a independent team in Sonoma, California. I'm about six right. chapters in, and basically the idea was. They 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 talk the team into letting them run the run the team analytics based strictly analytics based and they got the manager on board and the and everyone on board, um and I haven't like I said they, I haven't gotten far enough in the book yet it's a wonderful book it's really funny um it's really Sam, Sam Miller Sam Miller writer. thank you and Ben, ben Lindbergh writes for the Ringer now actually. oh okay but he is they he has written for the baseball they've written for Baseball Prospectus and Five Thirty Eight yep. and all kind of your your typical analytics sites it's a great book um but I, but I, but I do feel like um you know analytics is kind of one of those kind of catch-all code words that you know I don't think people fully really know what it means and i don't even you know i I, i'm i'm kind of new into the the stat head world and i'm trying to to learn more about it uh, because i think it's a really valuable tool for sports journalists but i feel like you know it's this idea that you know we just look at the numbers and that's all we make our decisions and like i and the kind of a misunderstanding of what probabilistic thinking is i just think that's kind of one of those terms that people are using kind of throwing out and not really knowing what it means or how it's really used well, and it's because the media who talk about sports all the time, most of them are not versed in what it is because it's different from sport to sport. You know, right. I mean, the you know, the every sport has its own set of analytics It has its I mean, and there are different types of analytics. There's analytics that are wa- fairly widely accepted. There's ones that are kind of way out there. Um, and. Look, I mean, ultimately, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, sports is a conservative uh, industry with a reactionary media culture that tends to tear down, uh, you know, uh, non-conservative ideas within the confines of the sport. And Mm -hmm. that's annoying because, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, there's coaches use variations on this stuff and have for a long time. Um, and you know, the, the very phrase analytics, you know, has been given this negative connotation by people who don't understand like its application or, or how things work. And, you know, look, I agree with you. I think it's, it's unfortunate, but it, this, you know, it's funny cause we just talked about hot takes you know, when, when we talk about the problems with sports media and the way that sports media covers certain elements of the sports, um, I think the way that analytics gets covered and the way that these things get talked about, I mean, these are this is a big issue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and um, and kind of and 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 just how it mar- kind of seems. Se- 
seems to try to marginalize you know that that point of view or or, or that and you know kind of create that the, this weird dichotomy i remember reading i think it was in nate so one of it might have been in nate silver's book the the baseball chapter of it and you know one of the guys he talked to you know said you know oh, it was a it was a veteran stat who was a veteran scout i'm sorry who like be kind of became uh you know kind of more analytics minded new analytics minded and he said and he would say to his fellow stat uh scouts he says Guys, what's the first thing we do every day when we get to a ballpark? We go to the press box and we get the stats. That's literally, and I remember seeing this. You know, you would see the scouts come in and they would get the the, the stats packages. So you know, they're kind of working working the same way. And it's and it's always funny when you see like a non analytics person make an at especially like in baseball, make an argument for somebody based on batting average. When if you think about how batting average is is compiled, it makes absolutely no goddamn sense whatsoever. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's kind of, it's that, except, you know, one of the things for analytics, we can wrap this up, but one of the things that I always think holds analytics back from being kind of widely understood, aside from like math issues, you know, people don't like thinking about math, is that we don't, it, it, the, the benchmarks aren't widely known for it. You know, if you have a war of point, uh, of nine, what does that mean? As opposed to you hit 300 this year, I know you had a good year. You know, I, I, I don't think that, you know, without those benchmarks, and, you know, that falls on media. That's our job is to, you know, explain what what a good war is, what a good uh, on-base percentage is. And, and that's, that's we're getting better at that, but I think that there's still a lot of room to make that better. So, I mean, look, uh, to some degree, the ability to benchmark – uh, is yeah, it's, I mean, it's something we have to strive for in everything. But um, those are like, it would be easy for those benchmarks to be well known by audiences if media would bother to learn them themselves. That's and true. And this goes right. this goes back to our debate earlier in the year about how much should media members learn about the sports that they're covering. Right. Uh, but we've already covered that ground. Right. Exactly. So so we have run long, but we had good stuff today. So. Yeah, um, good times. So always good times. So you can always catch us. Like I said, we're on Twitter at FlipsidePod, at BP Moritz, at Dr. GC. Hit us up with topics with the hashtag at hashtag FlipsidePod, and we'll, we, you too can contribute to the show, and we'll, we'll spend at least one minute talking about what you want us to talk about. We shall indeed, and we hope that you folks had a good time listening. We had a good time talking. Mm-hmm. We will catch you folks uh, on the flip side next week.